0: This episode may not be suitable for all listeners. It includes extensive description of human remains, and it concerns themes such as sexuality and stillbirth. Please use discretion when listening to this episode. Thank you. Salaam alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 148, The Life of Tutankhamun. Today, we explore the daily life and experiences of the grown-up king. As Tutankhamun matured, becoming a teenager and adult, his physical world changed. Today, we get a sense of what life was like for the young pharaoh. This episode comes to you on behalf of William and Kurt, who signed up to the Patreon for annual memberships that is wonderful and I cannot thank you enough. On their behalf, we can make offerings for the health of the pharaoh. To everyone listening, thank you kindly. May Jehuti or Thoth, master of wisdom and knowledge, ensure that your medical treatments are effective and worthwhile. As usual, you can find information about this episode at egyptianhistorypodcast.com, and you can sign up to support the show at patreon.com forward slash egypt podcast. Now then, let's visit the royal palace, and see Tutankhamun's life. In 1336 BCE, King Tutankhamun was approximately 17 years old. By Egyptian standards, he was an adult, The pharaoh was young, but mature. After eight years on the throne, he had developed into a full-grown male. He did not know it yet, but young Tutankhamun had just a couple years to live. To understand Tutankhamun's life, we must begin with his mummy. The young king's body, preserved and wrapped, lay in his tomb for 3,000 years. Excavators found that tomb in 1922, and after a few years' work, they finally opened the coffins. The mummy of Tutankhamun returned to the light in November 1925. Howard Carter and his team painstakingly opened the sarcophagus, the golden coffins, and the mummy wrappings. Slowly, over several days, they unwrapped the king's body. What they found was not great. The mummy of Tutankhamun is poorly preserved. Today, the body lies in several pieces, and the overall condition is bad. That may sound surprising. If Tutankhamun's burial was intact, why is the mummy so damaged? Well, there are several reasons for it, and I will explain those another time when I discuss the tomb itself. For now, I will just say that the king's mummy suffered a bit during the process of mummification. Then, while it lay in its tomb, it decayed a little bit, and after discovery, the excavation caused further damage. So poor Tutankhamun has endured a lot in the centuries since his death. Today, his body is poorly preserved. That makes it difficult to study. The condition of Tutankhamun's mummy is a problem for scientists. X-rays and CT scans can examine the bones and the skin. But when scientists notice damage or problems, it can be hard to interpret. For example, if the king's body has a broken bone... It may be difficult to confirm if the break happened before his death or after. As a result, every study over the past hundred years has reached different conclusions about this king. Scholars have proposed a variety of illnesses, conditions, and physical characteristics for Tutankhamun. In 2021, there is still a lot of debate, so everything I'm about to say is a maybe. The king's life and his body is a little bit controversial in the academic sense. With that in mind, what can the mummy tell us? What do we know about Tutankhamun, the teenage pharaoh? By age 17, King Tutankhamun was approximately 167 centimeters tall. That's 5 foot 5. That seems to be roughly normal for ancient Egyptian males. So Tutankhamun was average height. Walking down the street, he would not stand out of a crowd. Tutankhamun may have been a skinny lad. His arms, legs, and torso are slender, and there is no evidence of fat deposits or extra weight. So it seems that he was on the slim side. His diet and exercise must have been reasonably healthy. Beyond the surface level, Tutankhamun had a few interesting features. Going to his head, we can observe a couple of traits. First, the king had an overbite, his upper teeth project forward slightly. The overbite seems to be inherited. Some of Tutankhamun's ancestors have it, and their mummies show the same feature. So that gives us an idea of the genetic family features. Apparently, members of the royal bloodline tended to an overbite. Next, Tutankhamun had a cleft palate. This wasn't a major problem, but it may have affected his speech or his eating. Cleft palates are tricky, they can have different forms and effects. But it is possible that Tutankhamun had a slightly nasal voice, as if he had a cold. Again, that is speculative, but it can be a side effect of this condition. If you are interested, I discussed the cleft palate more in episodes 143 and 144. Beyond the overbite and the palate, the king's teeth are healthy. In fact, they are surprisingly healthy excellent condition according to a dental study. The king had all of his teeth, none were missing. There were no obvious diseases, cavities, or decay. So it seems that Tutankhamun had a good diet, low in sugar, and he kept his teeth clean. Or, his dentist was quite skilled. Either way, good for him. However, Tutankhamun did have some issues with his mouth. As a teenager, the king faced a problem that many youths endure. You see, by the time he died, Tutankhamun's wisdom teeth were causing trouble. X-rays and CT scans show that Tutankhamun had four wisdom teeth coming in. Three of them were healthy. They were emerging, or erupting, in a normal manner. So that's good. However, one tooth was going wrong. Tutankhamun's fourth wisdom tooth, tooth number 28 for those who are interested, was impacted. While emerging through the bone and the gums, this tooth got stuck. It could not emerge properly, and it was pressing against the molars. That can be painful in many circumstances. And left untreated, an impacted tooth could easily lead to gum disease. So that was an issue. Tutankhamun had a good diet, and he kept his teeth healthy, but nature had its own plans. The pharaoh experienced a problem that countless humans have suffered since. His wisdom teeth were coming in, and at least one of them may have been quite painful. Ouch. Beyond the head, what about the rest of Tutankhamun's body? The king's feet are slightly controversial. Different studies by x-ray and CT scanning have identified possible issues with his feet. Tutankhamun may have had foot supination. Supination is a condition where the weight of your foot tends to roll outwards when walking. Normally, human feet should roll inwards, so the foot is basically going the opposite way. Supination is not necessarily a problem. You can lead a normal, mobile life. But if the condition is severe, it may cause stress on the ankles, hips, and back. So it is possible that King Tutankhamun dealt with some of those issues. Other studies have gone further. When Dr. Zahi Hawass and his team did a CT scan of the mummy, they suggested that Tutankhamun had a club foot. This is a broad term describing situations where the feet roll or twist under the ankle. Club foot may be severe or relatively mild. And even in extreme cases, the person can sometimes still walk on the foot. So, a club foot may have been an issue for Tutankhamun. But again, a lot of this is up for debate. If the king did have a condition in his feet, that might explain a set of objects found in his tomb. The king's burial contained a huge assortment of walking sticks, canes long and short turned up in the monument. These might give a hint at his daily life. Tutankhamun had many canes, more than 130 in total. Obviously, I can't describe all of them, but a couple of them are interesting. Very quickly, let me describe a few. First, we have a pair of sticks made of gold and silver. They were about 130 centimeters tall, so shorter than the king himself. These ones must have been ceremonial. For one thing, they are heavy and valuable. For another, they have small statues of Tutankhamun at the top. So they are probably designed for temples or processions, maybe even the funeral of the king himself. The little statues show the king as a child, walking forward with his arms by his sides. They are cute images. I have a replica of one that I keep on my desk, and I'm quite fond of it. Secondly, we have some walking sticks that display imperial power. Four canes made of wood showed up in the tomb, and the ends of these sticks had an interesting design. The artisans carved the end in the shape of prisoners. Two figures, both men, adorn one end of the stick. They are bound and tied, with their arms at their sides. One man is a southerner, from Wawat or Kush. The other is a northerner, from Canaan or Syria. In other words, these canes present images of enemies, people whom Tutankhamun, as the pharaoh, needed to defeat. So whenever the king walked around using the stick, he leaned on the bodies of his foes. Symbolically, it conveyed Tutankhamun's power, his authority as the ruler of an empire. Finally, we have the best walking stick of all. This one is simple, a long reed decorated with geometric patterns and hieroglyphs. It may not seem fancy compared to the other ones, but it is easily the most significant. You see, this walking stick bears an inscription that tells us how Tutankhamun acquired it. The hieroglyphs say, quote, a reed that his majesty cut with his own hand. End quote. Tutankhamun cut the wood for this cane himself. On some expedition, maybe a hunting trip, he took an axe and removed this piece from the plant. So, it was his personal walking stick, the one he made and used. The king's personal cane is about 181 centimeters long. That makes it taller than Tutankhamun himself. When using this item, the stick would have towered over the king. So you could imagine Tutankhamun walking along with his long staff. I picture some kind of ancient Egyptian wizard. Gandalf on the Nile Valley, if you will. If the queen ever complained about his speed, Tutankhamun could simply reply. A pharaoh is never late, Ancus and Amun. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Hmm. Needs work. As I said... Tutankhamun had many canes, staffs, and walking sticks, more than 130 in total. The excavators of this tomb, Howard Carter and his colleagues, were impressed with the number and variety. When he described the discovery, Carter noted the walking sticks, and according to him, King Tutankhamun, quote, "...must have been an amateur collector of walking sticks, for we found a great number. They were no doubt in part of ritualistic significance." but many of them have evidently seen daily use. In other words, the tomb held many canes and walking sticks. Some were ornamental or ceremonial, others had the wear and tear of daily use. They came in various styles, materials, and sizes. So Tutankhamun may have enjoyed a collection. Or perhaps the king needed them. If Tutankhamun did have a problem with his foot, walking sticks may have been a necessity. Supination and clubfoot can vary in the severity. Many people with them live perfectly mobile lives. But if the problem was acute, or painful, Tutankhamun may have needed assistance. The walking sticks, all 130 of them, might be a quiet testimony of that need. So, Tutankhamun may have had a physical handicap in his foot, This diagnosis is still tentative, and scientists debate the nature and severity of the issue. For now, we can only say maybe. In 1336 BCE, King Tutankhamun was approximately 17 years old. He was a slender individual, of average height. His teeth were healthy, but there were some issues particularly from his wisdom teeth. The king had a cleft palate that might have affected his speech, but overall he was a reasonably healthy young man. That being said, Tutankhamun may have dealt with some physical issues. There is possible evidence for diseases that might have afflicted him, and I will discuss those in the next episode. Additionally, the king's physical body may have given him some trouble. It is possible that his left foot was a problem, and he may have used a cane or walking stick to help him with mobility. Again, all of this is uncertain. It is possible that some of Tutankhamun's issues, quote unquote, actually came about after his death. The king's body is poorly preserved, making it difficult to study with confidence. So we have some basic ideas, and a simple story to tell. But for now, it's still a bit vague. Hopefully, future research will add more information. This brings us to the end of chapter one. After the break, we will dive deeper into the physical evidence for Tutankhamun's lifestyle. Objects from his tomb give hints at the king's daily business. We also get a glimpse at the sad story of his children. Tutankhamun tried to father a child, twice. The tragic results survive to this day. That is after the break. See you in a moment. This is the story of the one. Chapter 2 The year was 1336 BCE. Tutankhamun was about 17 years old. The king of Egypt had reached physical maturity. He was in good health, for the most part, and he probably led an active lifestyle. For the rest of this episode, I want to focus on some objects from his tomb. Certain items shed light on Tutankhamun's physical experiences, and the ways he may have lived. Some items are simple, like the royal shaving kit others are more complicated, and some are a little tragic. In this chapter, I would like to describe the king's daily routine and his children. Let's start with the king's morning preparations. Among the glittering treasures of Tutankhamun's burial, there are plenty of personal objects as well. One of my personal favourites is a shaving kit. In his tomb, archaeologists found a variety of razors These are made of bronze or copper, and they come in different styles. Some of the razors have wooden handles over the metal. Others are straight copper, blade and handle together. Some are short and rounded. Others are long, like scalpels. It seems that the king's servants and attendants had many different tools for his beauty and maintenance. So we can imagine the teenage pharaoh sitting each morning to receive their attentions, Apparently, Tutankhamun shaved from an early age. As the king of Egypt and high priest of all the gods, he was obliged to maintain a certain purity. Removing the hair would ideally prevent lice and help him to cleanse his limbs. So, from the moment he became the pharaoh, and maybe earlier, Tutankhamun's servants shaved his head and body. The mummy of the king shows us the results. Tutankhamun's body has no hair, Anywhere on his body. It seems that during embalming, the physicians shaved his face, head, and limbs. So the king remains smooth and hairless to this day. He is pure for eternity, in a sense. Apparently, Tutankhamun's servants shaved him from childhood. On a box from the tomb, someone wrote a text saying, quote, The bag of his majesty when he was a child. What is within it? Copper razors knife razors, and alabaster jugs. End quote. So it seems that Tutankhamun was going hairless from an early age. Later, somebody kept those tools, or at least the shaving bag, and put it in the tomb. It is another tiny detail of his early life, a record of his daily routines and experiences. As they shaved his body from head to toe, the attendants also cared for Tutankhamun's skin. The king took many cosmetic items into the afterlife, and his mummy had oils and unguents on it for protection. When archaeologists opened the coffins, they found a layer of white fatty ointment on the skull of the king. It's possible that was a cosmetic used to protect the scalp. The king's tomb also had containers for oils and unguents. When excavators cleared it, they found many of these objects. Of course, most of the oils were lost. Either tomb robbers had stolen them when they were fresh, or they had decayed. Obviously, ointments do not last for 3,000 years. When they opened the containers, the archaeologists found brown, rotten goo. That's a shame, but looking at the containers, Howard Carter estimated the volume of ointment that the king took with him. Apparently, Tutankhamun had, quote, "...at least 350 litres of oils..." Fats and other unctuous materials. End quote. That's 350 litres, or 92 gallons. So originally, the young king had an ample supply of cosmetics. Then, there was makeup, an essential part of the daily routine, adding colour to the skin and helping to protect the eyes. Egyptian makeup is famous, and we will have more opportunities to describe it in the future. For now, here is the makeup that Tutankhamun used. The king's tomb had containers for various items. The most notable one is coal. Coal is the black eye paint that you often see in Egyptian art. It is made from different ingredients like copper carbonate or lead sulphide. The artisans ground the materials into a powder. Then they mixed it with water to make a kind of paste. Taking a brush or stick, they applied that paste to the eyelids, Drawn around the outside of the eye, the coal left a thick black line. The stereotype of ancient Egyptians with thick eyeliner comes from this material. Coal is aesthetic, it looks nice, but it also protects the eyes. In a world without sunglasses, the black of the coal absorbed sunlight, so coal was useful for protecting one's vision. The servants shaved Tutankhamun's body. They anointed him with oils, makeup, and all the lovely materials of the cosmetic wardrobe. Eventually, the king's daily routine was complete. Now, he could inspect the results. The king's mirrors were round discs attached to a handle. They lay in special cases, decorated with gods and hieroglyphs. Originally, Tutankhamun had several mirrors in his tomb. Unfortunately, they all disappeared to grave robbers so we just have the cases. But we can work backwards from other items. Egyptian mirrors tended to be metal. Gold, silver, or copper, polished to a high sheen. When done right, the smooth and flattened surface could give a reasonable reflection. So we can imagine what the king may have looked like in the mirror. It would be blurry compared to a modern glass mirror, but with the right skills, an artisan could make a decent reflecting surface. So the pharaoh could sit in his chair while servants tended to his body. After the shaving and the anointing, out came the mirrors. Tutankhamun could see his face, freshly shaved, adorned with ointments and makeup. He could inspect his reflection, request any changes, or simply nod his approval. Putting the mirrors back into their cases, the servants could pride themselves on a job well done. Tutankhamun finished his morning routine. From there, the pharaoh, clean of body and fresh of skin, could attend to his sacred duties, offerings to the gods and all that. Afterwards, Tutankhamun attended government business. But eventually, he came to his leisure hours. We know that the king loved certain types of recreation, especially chariot riding and hunting. I will talk about that the next episode. For now, let's focus on the more intimate recreations. In the eighth year of his reign, Tutankhamun was about 17 years old. That means he was physically mature, and presumably he had the usual sexual appetites of a teenager. More importantly, he was capable of bearing children. So the final question for today is, what do we know about Tutankhamun's offspring? Sadly, it is a tragic tale. We know that Tutankhamun fathered at least two children. But they did not make it to birth. As an adult, the king and his partner dealt with the agony of stillbirths. Twice, the royal infants died prematurely. So Tutankhamun tried to be a father, but misfortune came to his family. How do we know that? Well, the king's children were in his tomb. When Howard Carter and his team cleared the burial of Tutankhamun, they found something remarkable. In a side room next to the burial chamber, a wooden chest sat atop some boxes. The chest lay in the corner in the northeast of the tomb. Within this chest lay a pair of tiny coffins. Two coffins of wood and gold lay side by side. They were arranged head to toe so that they would fit in the box. The coffins are simple, they are shaped like mummies with golden faces. Around the body, hieroglyphs referenced the bodies inside. I'll talk about the coffins in a moment. First, let's discuss their contents. Within these coffins, the team uncovered a mournful sight. Two mummies belonging to infants. They had died during pregnancy, weeks or months before birth. The mummies were both female, and they seemed to be the children of Tutankhamun. The infants were tiny. The first was about 26 centimeters long, 10 inches. This child seems to have died about 6 months into the pregnancy. Now, because the body was so small, the ancient embalmers could not mummify it in a traditional manner. There was no space to remove the organs or pack the body with material. So the physicians seem to have left all of that inside, and simply covered the body with salts. Basically, they mummified the child in a natural way, as if it were lying in the desert, drying under the sand. The larger mummy is 36 centimeters long, 14 inches. This one died at approximately 8 or 9 months. It was a girl, and she was probably close to birth when tragedy struck. By the time of her death… The little girl was developing rapidly. She had her eyelashes and eyebrows, and her eyeballs are still preserved in the sockets. Because her body was larger, the embalmers could remove some of the organs and pack linen into the cavities. So she underwent a traditional form of mummification. The mummies of these children have gone through a few examinations since 1922. As usual, the discussion is complicated. But the general consensus seems to be that these girls are the daughters of Tutankhamun. Fair enough, they were in his tomb after all. Also, more recent studies, like the DNA study published in 2010, suggest that they are his children with 99.9% certainty. That DNA study has issues, but in the context, this does seem reasonable. I think we could say these are his children. That being said, who was the mother? Well, That is actually unknown. We generally assume that the mother was Ankh-Esen-Amun, the queen of Egypt, the king's great wife. Ankh-Esen-Amun is the only woman that we know about connected with Tutankhamun, so she is the best candidate. But to be fair, we do not know for certain if she was the mother of these children. The tiny coffins do not reference the parents, either the mother or the father. And to date, the mummy of Ankhesenamun is tentative at best, so her relationship with the children is still unconfirmed. Fair enough, that is good scientific caution. Ankhesenamun was the king's great wife, but that does not necessarily mean she was the mother. Tutankhamun could have had other sexual partners in his adolescent life. With that in mind, we generally assume Ankhesenamun is responsible for these children but that is not 100% certain. Yet. So the father is easy enough, the mother is technically unknown. And with that, we come to the limit of our information. These tiny children are anonymous. There are no records for their birth, their death, or their heritage. For now, here is what we know. At some point, Tutankhamun fathered children. The king had sex at least twice in his life, he impregnated a woman and created the next generation. Unfortunately, neither child made it full term. One died six months into the pregnancy, the other after eight or nine months, close to birth, but not close enough. So at some point, Tutankhamun and his partner had to endure the grief of stillbirth. They lost their child more than once. This must have been a terrible experience for both people, After 3,000 years, we can extend our empathy to the grieving parents. On the days of these events, midwives and priestesses removed the infants. They cleaned the bodies and gave them to the embalmers. Each child experienced a different form of mummification. The priests wrapped them in bandages and lay them in tiny coffins. Later, the children went into the king's tomb, We do not know how long these babies lay in their coffins before Tutankhamun himself died. Perhaps it was years, maybe it was months. Either way, the priests must have stored these bodies somewhere, waiting for the burial of a parent. Eventually, they went to the tomb of King Tutankhamun, and 3,000 years later, their tiny stories returned to the light. Today, the children enjoy an afterlife of fame. It seems a poor price to pay for the lives they never lived. The tiny mummies lay in golden coffins and mummy masks. I will describe those in the epilogue. For now, let us bring this story to its end. By age 17, Tutankhamun experienced his share of challenges. The king had grown up with some physical conditions. His body may have been disobedient, not performing to its full ability. But day to day, Tutankhamun lived a reasonably healthy life. He had a good diet, and he took care of his teeth. His morning routine was rich, with regular barbering and cosmetics to nourish the skin. And when he walked, the king strutted with, or leaned on, beautiful staffs and canes. One of these was his own item, a cane that Tutankhamun cut with his very hand. So we can imagine the teenage pharaoh in reasonably good health most of the time. There were occasional illnesses and some physical challenges here and there. Overall, though, he enjoyed a comfortable lifestyle. Alas, his life was not immune to loss. The young king fathered at least two children who died prematurely. Tutankhamun and his partner, who might be Ankhesenamun, had to suffer that agony. An agony that has touched every generation before and since. Today, these stories are shadowy, but we can empathise with their experiences. Anyone who has dealt with mobility issues may find a kindred spirit in the young pharaoh. Anyone who has lost a child can know intimately that sensation. Across 3,000 years, we can still catch a glimpse of this man's life. Next time, we cover a most important topic. Over the past few episodes, we have discussed the reign of Tutankhamun and its various achievements, the king's major policies, his initiatives. Well, Tutankhamun was a young ruler, and for most of his reign, the true power probably lay with his officials. We have introduced some of these men previously. Now it is time to get to know them properly. I, Horemheb, Maya and others, were the true authorities in Tutankhamun's government. On the next episode, we meet these king's men properly, and see how they governed Egypt and its empire in the name of the pharaoh. My special thanks to Geoffrey Goodman, Keith Scissor, Ancient Lyric, and Luke Chaos. They generously provide music for me to use with their permission, and I am eternally grateful. If you enjoyed the sounds in this episode, or the show in general, please support the artists. Follow the links in the episode description to hear more of their work. Finally, my special thanks to Kyla, Evan, Kendra, Jason, TJ, Terry, and Linda. These fine folks support the show as priests on Patreon.com. Their support is too generous. Thanks to them, I can afford a safety razor and blades for my shaving kit. And if I ever need a walking stick, I can buy one, thanks to their support. Cheers. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you are enjoying the story, and I will see you on the next episode. Now then, stick around after the music for an epilogue. Twice in his life, Tutankhamun fathered children. Sadly, both infants died before birth. The little girls were mummified, wrapped in bandages, and placed in tiny coffins. Then, they went into the tomb. The two children lay, head to toe, in a box. Their golden coffins are small, but distinctive. They look like mummies, with shining faces. And around the body, the coffins bear hieroglyphs related to the deceased. Surprisingly, the coffins do not have names for the children. Instead, the texts on the casket simply say, the Osiris. In other words, the burial equipment simply refers them to the god of the dead. These children are anonymous, they do not have personal names. Why? Well, first up, the Osiris thing. In the days of Tutankhamun, it was common for tombs and coffins to refer to a dead person as the Osiris. Usually, we find it written as the Osiris plus a personal name. So, the Osiris Nefer or the Osiris Maya, for example. The idea seems to be that, after death, each soul united with that god. In the next world, people enjoyed an eternity as a form of Osiris, the god who transcended death. So, calling these babies the Osiris may have been a simple way of guaranteeing their immortality, They hadn't made it to our world, but they could still live in the kingdom of Osiris. But you may be wondering, why didn't Tutankhamun, or his partner, give these babies their own personal names? Well, that is complicated. Naming conventions are still a little bit murky, there are no texts or manuals describing the ideas, so we have to guess a little bit. I suspect the children are anonymous because they were stillborn they did not survive the birthing process. They had never opened their eyes, they had never breathed. So, from an Egyptian perspective, it's possible they had never lived. Remember, one of the most important rituals in Egyptian funerals was the act of opening the eyes, ears, and mouth of the deceased. If a child entered this world, dead, before that could happen, that may have affected their position in the cosmos. So perhaps the children are anonymous because they did not quite achieve life in the Egyptian sense. They could still go to the kingdom of Osiris and spend eternity there, but on earth, their status was different. The daughters had not opened their mouths, they had not breathed, thus they were not quite people in an Egyptian sense. Clearly though, these babies were important. The embalmers prepared them carefully, and they had valuable coffins. Then they went to their rest in the tomb of a king, and they had the identity of an Osiris figure. So although they were technically nameless, these children enjoyed a status far beyond the ordinary. The priests laid the girls in their coffins. Each baby had two coffins, a small one nestled inside a larger one. Also, one of the mummies had a mask, a tiny golden portrait over her head, shoulders, and face. The mummy mask is minuscule. It is delicate, and a beautiful example of the goldsmith's craft. Looking at the tiny face, it is hard not to feel a touch of sadness. The other mummy, the larger one, did not have a mask. Well, actually she did, it just wasn't in the tomb. When Howard Carter and his team opened these coffins, only the smaller child had her mummy mask. Was it stolen? Not quite. It turns out that the artisans who made these coffins, and the masks, had trouble with the size. One of the coffins was too large to properly fit in the chest, and the priests had to cut part of the toes off to fit it in the box. The same thing happened with a mummy mask. It seems that the artists made a mask for the larger mummy, but when they placed her body in the coffin, the mask would not fit. They could get the mummy in, but only if she didn't wear the mask. That was a problem. How did they solve it? Well, it turns out the mask did survive. In fact, it was discovered about 15 years before the tomb of Tutankhamun. In 1907, excavators found a small cache in the Valley of the Kings. This was a pit, with objects related to the funeral of Tutankhamun. Lo and behold, One of the objects found in this cache was the mummy mask of the child. So, 3,000 years ago, the mask would not fit. The priests had to improvise, and for a long time, the little girl went without. Now, we have the mask once again. The golden coffins went into a chest together. They lay head to toe, like siblings sharing a bed. And when it came time to prepare the tomb, these tiny children went with the king. They lay in rest for 3,000 years. Today, they are kept in a secure environment, away from prying eyes. The children did not have names, as far as we can tell. Nevertheless, the coffin makers treated them as Osiris. Their little souls would enjoy the protection of the king of the dead. The great god, lord of the next world, cared for them in eternity.